You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at WGU.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Edward Acorn. You may recognize the name because we just hosted a podcast with him regarding his book, The Lincoln Miracle that detailed the 1860 Republican National Convention in Chicago for having him on again. Why? So we can go through what is one of the most illuminating books about one particular subject I've ever read. And the book is called Every Drop of Blood, The Momentous Second Inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Mr. Acorn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Robert, for having me. The book, I don't know how many books I've read about the Civil War. <laughs> I'm going to guess, and I'm not saying this to be a kid, but 150, 100? I had never read an account of Lincoln's second inaugural, which, of course, is universally praised as one of the greatest speeches, not only in American history, but of all time. I've never read it explained the way that you explained it. So before we start unwrapping uh, your take on it and the events surrounding the address, which took place, I believe, on March 4th, 1865, so right. just about five weeks before he's assassinated, what drew you to this particular topic? Well, I've I always loved Lincoln since I was a kid, and I've always been very moved by this speech, which I think is just so strange and so profound. Um, and I wanted to understand the context of the speech, how, how, uh, what was happening when he was delivering it. And I, I, I started studying that day when I was thinking of uh, book research and all that. And, um, I started noticing all these very famous people keep popping in and out of the story that day. You know, uh, Walt Whitman is covering it for the New York Times, and John Wilkes Booth is stalking Lincoln at the inauguration, and uh, Clara Barton is involved with the events. And um, 
and it's just uh, Frederick Douglass, the great black leader, is standing there watching Lincoln deliver the speech. And I, I wanted to really um, understand his speech in light of the perspectives of all those people toward Lincoln and toward the war. And I found just uh, by looking at all of them individually and bringing them all together uh, in the course of this 24 hours I'm writing about, it really throws a light on that uh, event like, like nothing else I've seen. Not many books, they exist, of course, but not many books are dedicated to a single day. Why a single day and not the week or the month? Yeah, I I like to do very uh, narrow history. It's called micro history, I guess some people call it. But I'd like to look at a very narrow period of time. In this book, it's just 24 hours from the night before the inauguration through the inauguration to the night after after he delivered it. And um, I think just looking very, and I think I mentioned this in the other in our other discussion, but. When you look at a very narrow period of time, suddenly these people aren't these historic figures. They're human beings. And you, you really relate to them as humans because they're going through the normal day like, like we do. And, and they're experiencing things. They're experiencing the politics of the moment. They don't know how everything's going to turn out. And I just think it's very poignant to, to look at uh, an event like this through the eyes of the the people who were there and through their limited perspective um and you see really what a what a tragedy this war was and what lincoln was dealing with which is a, just a high it's almost an insufferable burden he dealt with so that's uh that's why i took the approach i did Let's let's expand it a little bit, if that's OK. I mean, a lot sure. of folks know kind of what was happening in the war at this time. So in November of 64, Lincoln is reelected over his former general in chief, George McClellan. Yes. Just looking at the bare numbers, it would appear to be a blowout. I think it was like 212, 200 and some electoral votes to like 21 for McClellan. But if you look at each individual state, the results are much closer. Just yeah, a was, few thousand votes in each state was enough to get Lincoln a victory in the Electoral College. What did Lincoln think of 64's election and how close it was and, and the mandate that he obviously got? Right. Well, right up to August before that election, he was fully expecting to be defeated. And in fact, he wrote a famous uh, message that his, that his cabinet signed. He wouldn't let them read it. He just made them sign it uh, uh, regarding uh, the loss of the election and what they would do. And uh, he, he, this was a very unpopular war. It had dragged on and on. Uh, people thought it would be over very quickly. It went on for four years. It touched every home in America. Uh, just the suffering of widows, uh, mothers losing their sons. It, it, it was just a, a terrible thing. And the thing that finally changed things for Lincoln and the war effort was when Sherman seized Atlanta. And then all of a sudden there was a sense, okay, this war can be prosecuted, can be prosecuted to its conclusion. And um and we might as well stick with Lincoln. And Lincoln pulled out all the stops. He uh, he really massaged that election. He let, let soldiers uh, come home from the battlefield to vote in their elections, or he permitted them to vote on the battlefield, depending on their their um, uh, their election laws in the individual states. And uh, that's the way he very, I think he rather narrowly won that re-election. And uh, it was, of course, vital vital to do that, to, to successfully prosecute that war and put an end to slavery. Very one important my, thing. One of my favorite quotes of the war that's filled with amazing quotes is Sherman's telegraph, or telegram, I guess I should say. So Atlanta is ours and fairly won. 
That's right. In between the election and the new year, the war is still being prosecuted. I've always felt and have said this in other uh, Civil War related podcasts that if you wanted to if you wanted to buy the state's rights argument of Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens and and that gang that there's there's actual constitutional philosophy political philosophy that could sustain it like it wasn't some ridiculous theory it was it was more than that it was something that a lot of incredibly bright patriots founding fathers believed in but every death after lincoln's reelection was murder how far off am i well uh the war was clearly not going to go the south's way after lincoln was reelected the south uh, felt we have to continue this fight we've we've devoted everything we're going to lose everything we're going to lose our whole way of life our freedom everything so they had to they felt they had to continue the war and and Jefferson Davis was just uh really uh passionately committed to the cause even after Richmond fell i mean and i I think, you know, you raise an important thing, like at what point is this war useless to prosecute? And I've always admired Robert E. Lee uh, for the way he handled the end of uh, that war. He he refused to carry, you know, Davis wanted to carry, up, carry it on as a guerrilla war, which would have been just uh, horrific for the country. And Lee decided to surrender and not not go along with that uh, approach of Davis and uh and he he Lee further conducted himself incredibly nobly I think he he refused to accept uh, symbols of the confederacy he said we're all one country now and uh that was very important in uh moving beyond that catastrophe throw in James Longstreet as well who I just finished a book on him that Elizabeth Varon wrote. If you know who that is, it's a brand new book. She's coming on the podcast. Longstreet's my favorite general of the war. And his conduct after the war was basically we fought, we lost. The winners get to decide. Let's go back to the way it was, minus slavery. Let's accept this condition. A lot of the people who really fought the hardest in that war wanted to make peace and be, be <laughs> reach across the divide and and become fellow countrymen again um yeah. some in the south did not but because they had lost so much but uh you you see that i, I mean i have a, a character in the in the book of general uh general selden connor who was uh was um this way he was very passionately devoted to restoring the union after he was brutally uh injured he he lost a leg and he suffered just immensely but he they interviewed him in 1914 i think i wrote in the book and and uh he was saying the most wonderful thing is that this country has come together it's it's no longer north and south so that says a lot about the people who fought that war and that's at the crux of Lincoln's speech. I mean, let's, exactly. let's which talk. is extraordinary for the context of the times. How would you compare? I've always been a huge fan of Lincoln's first inaugural address. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on that? And then we'll go down the journey of late winter of 65. Well, the the first inaugural address was much longer. It was um, Lincoln had been silent all through the election and even after the election. Uh, people were turning to him saying, what are we going to do here? How are we going to save the country? And this was his first statement about what we were going to do. And it was very much devoted to preserving slavery where it existed and trying to keep peace be between North and South because the first uh, battles had not occurred. Um, the, the second inaugural was a, a blasted country after four years of war. I mean, just horrific 
suffering on both sides. And Lincoln had had to issue the Emancipation Proclamation as part of the war effort, which freed uh, slaves in the, in the areas that were still in rebellion against the United States. And he uh, felt very passionately about his promise that all the slaves freed through that Emancipation Proclamation must be kept free. That was one of the things that really broke his heart about the thought he might not be reelected. So in the in the um, in the second inaugural, he defines the meaning of that war for the first time, I think, as this was a, a war we had to go through both sides because of the crime of slavery. Um, and then we deserved. Well, he, he says you might. He doesn't exactly speak for the Lord. He doesn't speak for God, but he says, you know, this may be why this terrible war dragged out so long because it had we had to go through this both sides to to get to the end of slavery because that was so immoral. And um, of course, the speech did not go over well in all circles but it's a very profound statement about the meaning of that war and i think we still uh have that interpretation of the war that it was fought to end slavery you are listening to the leaders and legends podcast our guest today is edward acorn we're discussing his book every drop of blood the momentous second inauguration of abraham lincoln you want to hear some reviews well, they're all good. They are called groundbreaking, a definitive narrative, wildly vivid, a new and exciting perspective. New York Journal of Books is very positive. Washington Post, the list goes on and on. Ed, what, is, what, do, what do reviews mean to you, if anything? Well, they they're very it's very encouraging to hear kind words because uh you know you work in on your own for many years and people are going off on vacation you're hunched over the computer working on this stuff so when people get what you're trying to do it's it's very gratifying very very encouraging um and I appreciated all those um both my Lincoln books have done actually all my, all four of my books have done very well with the critics. So I'm very grateful for that. The first inaugural address. Is it meant to be conciliatory? The second inaugural address. Is that meant to be conciliatory in the sense of the first one is let's not do this. And the second one is, okay, now we've done this. The war's almost over. Let's get back together. Yeah, the first one's a, a little harsher, I think. He's Lincoln's pledging, look, if you guys uh, strike at the United States, um, the United States is going to defend its property, notably Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. Um, and it was so sort of tough that uh, William Seward, uh, who was Lincoln's uh, Secretary of State elect, uh, he, he told them to, uh, why don't you tone it down and do something about uh, Patriot Graves? And Lincoln took what Seward had written to him and wrote this beautiful ending of the first uh, inaugural. I don't have it by heart, but it's everybody knows it uh, who's read that that speech and it and it was a conciliatory gesture we're all americans here let's try to work this out um the second inaugural was you know it, it was saying look we've all suffered horribly and i think lincoln turned to the one thing that united both north and south at that time which was a deeply held belief in god and especially Christ, the christian faith and he tried to say, "Let us let's realize both sides have suffered horribly, and maybe that's a just thing because of the crime of slavery." 
and let's try to move on from here, uh, bind up the nation's wounds and uh, move together with malice toward none, with charity for all. And these are extraordinary things for a president to say. I mean, you got to you got to put this in context. Yeah. It's this has been a ruling, terrible, evil, savage war. Uh, Sherman is still in the South, um, going, tearing through the South, essentially showing you cannot defend yourselves against us. You have to give up. And it's it's really brutal. And I write about some of this in the book, what, what Sherman is doing in the course of pr- prosecuting this war. And Lincoln was very much behind that. Let's We have to have all-out war, and we have to finish this thing as soon as we can. And there were religious leaders like uh, Henry Ward Beecher who who was saying, we need to punish the South so they will never do this again. And he was preaching about, uh, let's really lay it on the South. And uh, Lincoln comes out and says, let's let's bind up the nation's wounds. Let's not uh savage each other uh to the extent it is possible not to do that so that's uh it, it's so extraordinary i can't think of another president who after four years of this brutal war would come out and admit he was wrong uh the other side was wrong we were all wrong and uh about the nature of this war and we were all wrong about slavery. We we all were participants in that. He and, references uh, 250 years, so he doesn't in the speech, which would take you back to 1615. So it's not right. 1619, but 1615. Right. He doesn't just say it's the last four years or go back to 76 or 89 for the or 88 for the Constitutional Convention. He goes back to the founding. To me, that was a very important part of the speech where he says, you know, this is this is part of who we've always been rightly or wrongly. Yeah, and you see, he lays it on both sides. Uh, it wasn't just, and Lincoln believed this very much, it wasn't just the South, it was the North as well involved in this. And this, he would, Lincoln had said, you know, if I was grew up in the South, I would support slavery too. This is the system that existed. Um, and we have to uh, deal with what exists realistically and try to get rid of it the best way we can with the least suffering possible. And that didn't turn out to be possible. We had to have immense suffering and and terrible tragedy before we got past slavery. You've mentioned suffering a few times, which is probably about the perfect word, but both Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln suffered personally through the loss of a child during the war. How did that, or did it not, affect their view of the struggle of the fight because their own personal loss affected them so much? I mean, Lincoln, and you can see in the movie, you know, how they're still fighting about it. Mary Todd, um, Willie was the favorite child, so to speak. Uh, I think Jefferson Davis is, I don't remember, he had a boy who died. I can't remember, did he fall out the window? He, he fell off a porch and uh, yeah. and died. Yeah. And they, these men, I mean, they, they didn't even have time really to grieve, neither of these men. They had to they had to just carry on with a terrible burden both of them faced. So I, you know, I don't know if it made them any more sympathetic. Lincoln was Lincoln had lost his first son uh before the war, uh a little boy, Eddie. Um, and he had known great suffering all his life. His mother died when he was nine. So, and he wrote about this to some of the, the, um, uh, children who had lost loved ones in that war. Um, he said, I understand how terrible it is to lose someone at a very young, when you're very young. Um, so they both, I mean, they both went through that. But they both doggedly carried on that war as savagely as they could, because they both considered it of paramount importance to win. President Lincoln was 
having a reception in the White House as his son was dying up on the second floor. I... Yeah, I write about that. Yes, it's uh, that was and and his other little boy, Tad, nearly died, and uh, Tad pulled through, and he was uh, quite a figure at the White House. He would uh, stop visitors to the White House and demand admission if they wanted <laughs> to come see the president and all this stuff. With all uh, of this stuff wrapped together, do you would you characterize Abraham Lincoln as a fatalist? Yes, I I, I write about that. He 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 grew up at, with um, Baptist parents, this so called hard shelled Baptists, who believed that uh, God controlled everything on earth, um, even before you were born. God knew what you were going to do and. Uh, had decided what was going to become of you. So this is a very fatalistic view of, of the world. Lincoln didn't become a, um, a regular churchgoer or a uh, aligned with any sect of uh, the Christian, Christian church. And some people thought he wasn't actually a Christian. He didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. Not sure if that's true, um, but he he did adopt this very fatalistic idea that there's only so much humans can do. Uh, a lot of this is in the hands of God. And we've got to do the best we can, but we can't do everything. And uh, I think that helped him just stay sane during that war. Um, he loved the Bible as a, uh, as a book that uh, understood human nature more profoundly than any other book. He he wasn't deeply religious in in the sense of uh, adhering to religious dogmas and so forth, but he believed very profoundly that that this book is just a magnificent uh, thing, a piece of literature that helps guide us through life. And uh, if anything was given by God's hand, it was this book. And he turned to it often during the war to, um, to, to give him comfort and help, help him carry on. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Edward Acorn, a terrific author. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He is a winner of the Yankee Quill Award. He has written several books. We've talked about one of them before, and that's the Lincoln miracle inside the Republican convention that changed history. Uh, today, we are talking, discussing a book that really took me in a direction that I hadn't I hadn't considered uh, with regard to Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural. And the book is called Every Drop of Blood, a quote from the address, the momentous second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Ed, there are people whether they're well-intentioned or ill-intentioned. And I try to ask every uh, Civil War scholar who comes on the podcast, comes on Leaders and Legends, this question. If the war wasn't about slavery, what could it have been about? Yeah, it, I, I always hold the view that it was about, at the bottom, it was about slavery. It, but it was about the different visions of the United States by these two parts of the country. I mean, the South really depended on black labor uh, to, to maintain their, their society. And this had been totally acceptable uh, throughout human history, really slavery. And uh, this was sort of a new thing that, that America ushered in was questioning slavery, questioning the morality of slavery, beginning with the founders. They were some of the first people in the in the entire history of the world who questioned the morality of slavery. And they get a very bad rap, I think. Uh, 
so we had these two sections that that just didn't agree with each other and the south became very offended at the constant moral criticism of their way of life by the north when they believed the north had uh, essentially brought slavery to the south through the through the slave trade and profited and, uh, it in their properties and and, and a lot of this was you know when people get insulted and get their back up and and uh, feel they no longer share the values of other people in the society they they want to go off and do their own thing and the 1860 election for the first time elected republicans which they considered a, a, a group of kooks really from the north <laughs> who, who didn't have any practical understanding um of what what the South was up against with agriculture and so forth. And so they they uh they were agitators. Yeah, they viewed them as agitators who who supported this they called it a, a Massachusetts standard of morality, which they considered very narrow and very puritanical and so forth. Um so that these two sections of the country just developed these very different perspectives and they couldn't sort of abide each other by 1860. And uh, so that's a sobering lesson about when people no longer um, agree on what this country is and what it stands for. And Lincoln the... was, you know, Lincoln, is, it, Lincoln was uh, characterized as being an abolitionist and all this, but he, he really wasn't. He was a very moderate guy who just wanted he really pushed the Republican Party to stand for one thing, which was to keep slavery where it existed, but not let it spread any further. And that was the whole crux of the difference between North and South. As he kept trying to, he kept trying to argue that leading up to the secession of the South, saying we we shouldn't be angry at each other. This is the this is the basis of our disagreement. You think slavery's right and ought to be expanded. We think it's wrong and ought to be contained. And that was uh, the explosive division between the two sides. To quote the address, one-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves, not distributed generally over the Union, but localized in the southern part of it. These slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest. All knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war given those words do you have any sympathy for people who try to push back and say it was about tariffs or, or something else i mean i just it's so overwhelmingly yeah. about one thing as a scholar as a historian do you just want to pull your hair out when someone makes these arguments that just don't have any basis in what was happening and being said then let alone well now they have some basis, but but I really slavery is clearly the overarching issue, and it was the reason the South felt so wounded by the North and and felt so wounded by that election, which essentially signaled slavery is is immoral, and uh, we're going to contain it. And that's the the North had achieved uh, power over the South, and that was that was. But you know. It, tariffs were part of it. If the North has power over the South, they can start uh, shaping the tariff system to benefit the North and punish the South. And the South just felt, we're not going to have any sort of legitimate representation in this government anymore. Um, so that was part of it. But, you know, I agree 100% with Lincoln that slavery was the overarching issue. As we get closer to March 4th and the reinauguration of Abraham Lincoln, how is he drafting his speech? Is he is he a writer who says, OK, I'll work on it for one hour on Sunday, then I'll come back <laughs> on Wednesday? Or does he just does he cram like everybody else? Lincoln was extraordinary. He took an immense amount of time writing. He he and he chose in the work. I mean, it's so beautifully done, but he. He would th he thought about these things for years. The basic issues of the second inauguration 
he, he contemplated for years and he would write down his thoughts and set them aside, you know, little pigeonholes. And then he'd pull them out when he when he needed them. And he, he wondered, uh, you know, fairly early in the war, 1862, 1863, you know, why is this war going on so long when it seems like really God should be supporting the cause of of maintaining this wonderful republic that that uh, offered freedom to people, really, for the first time in world history. Why is God not on the side of ending this war? Why does this suffering go on? And he finally answered, it had to go on until the last vestiges of slavery were eradicated. Um, that's the conclusion he came to from his fatalistic view that Essentially, man is limited. We can only achieve so much. God has sometimes other intentions in mind. I mean, his his, his favorite line was from Hamlet. As, uh, he was a big fan of Shakespeare. His favorite line was from Hamlet. There's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how we will, which means we can sort of shape our what we want to do roughly but uh, divinity ultimately shapes what's going to happen you mentioned it earlier uh, mentioning uh, secretary of state william seward who was um, very bold at the beginning of of the administration <laughs> in 1861 and then very quickly saw that lincoln was what did he say he's he's the best of us all or the greatest yes. of us all yeah uh, did anyone else have any hand in crafting the second inaugural address? You mentioned Seward think, talking yeah. about, you know, the, the Patriot graves and things like that. Was, was this solely an Abraham Lincoln production? I think it was. I think it was. And it's so brief. It's uh, 700 plus words, you know, can deliver it in five minutes, you know. Uh, and I think this was a Lincoln Lincoln product. He would he would share some of the ideas with people, but he pretty much kept it himself. And he kept, you know, you asked about his writing. He kept working on it right up to the moment he delivered it. You can see his, um, he printed up uh, the words he wanted to say. He had it printed and then he was scratching it out and adjusting it right up to delivering the speech. So he was a very careful, brilliant writer. I mean, I think he's, he's the, He's up there with Mark Twain as the greatest stylist in American literature. Let's talk about some of the other folks who were at least uh, in the orbit of Lincoln uh, during the inauguration, the period that you're covered, that you cover in your book. Let me start with, I hate to do this to you, but I, I can't help myself. Andrew Johnson. <laughs> he's the new vice president. He replaces Hannibal Hamlin because they want kind of a Southern Democrat who supported the war. Whether Johnson made a difference, uh, I don't really recall reading that he did particularly, but uh, he's probably the second most famous person, uh, his behavior during that day, March 4th. Uh, take us through what Andrew Johnson was doing. Well, Johnson initially didn't even want to come to the inauguration. He uh, he had to be ordered to show up to Washington to be sworn in and so forth. He he felt he had too much to to wrap up in uh, Tennessee. So Lincoln thought, well, this is an unusual guy, but we'll get him up here and uh, deal with it. So he shows she shows up, and supposedly he wasn't feeling all that well, and he took some. Um, glasses of whiskey to sort of calm his nerves. But by the time he got out to take the oath and make his speech, he was quite obviously drunk. And he made this maudlin rambling speech that went on and on and on. And poor Lincoln was sitting there with a pained expression on his face uh, because uh, he had helped install this guy. Uh, and it was... You know, I enjoyed um, some of the commentary about this speech. Naturally, the Democratic papers love this, you know, that well, this idiot uh, picked a, uh, a drunk for vice president. But people, you know, leaving the inauguration, there were interviews uh, in some of the newspapers with people saying, well, 
oh god let's hope nothing ever happens to lincoln because uh can you imagine this guy as president and of course six weeks later something did happen to lincoln frederick Douglass. um and please tell the story we'll jump past the the actual delivery of the speech I, I was familiar with this story. You do a wonderful job recounting it about Frederick Douglass going to the White House for the reception after the ceremony. Yeah, I, I think Douglass is a wonderful figure. He's so brilliant. He's such a beautiful writer, but he really detested Lincoln early in the war. And one of the narrative arcs of the book is his changing attitudes about Lincoln and he was not allowed inside the Capitol to join the other VIPs uh, because he was a black man. So he had to stand out in front uh, in the mud and listen to Lincoln deliver the speech. And he was, I mean, blacks listening to that speech just had tears running down their faces because this man was talking about the immense moral evil of slavery and how this country had to go through this tragedy to uh, deal with it. So that night, uh, Douglas went to the White House. Uh, he felt th th there was a reception at the White House, I should explain this, where anybody could come in on the streets, off the streets, stand in line and uh, wait around and then shake the, president, <laughs> the president's hand. Uh, and you can imagine how tired Lincoln got doing this. But uh, Douglas showed up. He felt, I, I have a right to be here. And they tried to throw him out because he was black. They didn't want uh, black people coming in the White House. And uh, eventually he, he was able to use some of his connections in the White House because he was actually friendly with Lincoln by this time and get into the White House. And uh, he stood there in line and Lincoln saw him coming up and he said, oh, there's my friend Douglas, you know, after after the security had tried to keep him out. And, and he, he came up and he said, Mr. Douglas, what did you what did you think of the speech? And Douglas said, I, I Mr. President, I, I I can't comment on that. I have no authority to comment on that. He said, No, seriously, what, what did you think? And he said, I thought it was a divine effort. And that was it was such a great moment for America, I think. That, that Lincoln and Lincoln made it clear that he cared clear. about Douglas's opinion. Right. He says something like, there's no man whose opinion I'd want. That's more. right. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's all there in the book. But it's this was one of the things that struck me about this day. These these people coming together that. And really saying something about the American experience. And I thought that was one of the great moments in American history. You reference it just a few seconds ago. Let's go back to it because it anticipates one of my actual final questions, but I want to get to it here. The, the reception of the speech by Black Americans. The one thing that you mentioned that I, that obviously, you know, it's common sense in a lot of ways, but really brings it home is the percentage of the, of the Black Americans who witnessed the speech who were former slaves that has to just have been astounding. I couldn't yes. even imagine. I couldn't even imagine how how they, like I couldn't articulate how they felt because to go from being a slave to watching, you know, the great emancipator give this speech and, and the speech isn't, you know, we won, they lost, let's right. cheer. It's the opposite. It, it acknowledges the original sin. Please go ahead. No, I, I, I agree with that's such a, a poignant moment when. Former slaves, they get in their best clothing they could muster, and and they came out in huge numbers to to that speech, and they stood out there in the mud and the rain to to hear Lincoln, this man who they considered the great emancipator, the man who had freed their race from from this horrific slavery, and. Uh, it's just extraordinary. And there, there was still some some reporting uh, that day that some of the white soldiers weren't too pleased to see them and handled them roughly and so forth. But uh, they, they were there out in force and um, they were in tears listening to him give that speech. And it's a real it's a really moving moment of uh, 
of our history that isn't talked about. We seem to want to endlessly attack the people who came before us uh, for not meeting our wonderful standards and so forth. But this is great beauty in, in that moment of um, former slaves uh, listening to this man who freed them talk about the meaning of that war. Another person who is mentioned uh, prominently, uh, frequently in your book is Walt Whitman. Why did you choose? He's famous for writing the O Captain, My Captain poem after uh, Lincoln's assassination. But why did you choose Whitman to to be a central uh, thread in this quilt of yours? Whitman's such a wonderful, interesting character. He's, He's almost larger than life. He's so boisterous and he writes that way. Uh, and here he is covering the, the the events for the New York Times of all things, and he's he's but he's I wanted to focus on him because he had spent much of the war in Washington after his brother was wounded. He spent much of the war in Washington uh, at the hospitals, trying ministering to these terribly suffering soldiers, and I thought that that really gave the reader an insight into you know what this war meant, how much people had, how great a price people had paid. I keep coming back to the word suffering, but that's that's what it is. And I thought his perspectives on the war, I, I tried to, with each of these characters, I tried to, to very quickly look at their perspectives on the war and, and give you a sense. This is the background of this great speech. Um, this is what people had experienced. And this this gives you a really powerful sense of what that speech was about. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We have a few more minutes left with Edward Acorn. We're discussing his terrific book, Every Drop of Blood, the momentous second inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. There is a picture, a photograph of Lincoln delivering the speech. And in most of the prints of this picture that you see in books, above Lincoln, there is a circle. (laughs) And in that circle is John Wilkes Booth. You can't write about this time period in Lincoln's life without writing about Booth. How did you manage to do it, quite frankly, in such in such a way that really sort of builds suspense to an event we already know is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I was I was quite struck to discover Booth was there at the inauguration. He apparently got access to the Capitol building and the VIP section because he was dating <laughs> he was dating the daughter of a very uh, abolitionist Republican senator, uh, of all things. So um, he, he managed to get an invitation to the to the ceremonial events. And apparently he slipped in behind Lincoln when Lincoln was sort of leading the group out onto the platform on the steps of the Capitol. And he I think he intended to kill him that day on the steps of the Capitol. You can imagine how dramatic that would be. And he had played Brutus in uh, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. Uh, you know, I think he was uh, crazy enough to have done that. And I wanted to bring Booth in because he's such, he's another good writer. I mean, he's hes this passionate devotee of the South and the, the Southern vision of what America should be. And he thought Lincoln had destroyed the country and uh, turned the uh, this country into a terrible, bloody wasteland. And he wanted to uh, stop Lincoln because he thought he was a tyrant and a, a monster. Uh, so I, I thought that was very important to bring that sentiment into the book to help readers understand the passions raging at that time. And that's the context of the speech. Lincoln did not deliver it in a placated country where everybody was happy. He was delivering it where people were violently opposed to each other and very angry. 
Um, and I people sometimes ask me what's what's the what was the most surprising thing in researching this book, and I always think it was reading all these newspapers and the reactions to Lincoln. I mean, Lincoln was a hated figure in much of the country. Uh, Democrats detested him, thought he was a tyrant. They detested the speech. They thought, how could any, especially this politician, dare to speak for God? I mean, it's it's outrageous. And how could somebody saying uh, with malice toward none, with charity for all, when he's leading a brutal assault on the South at that very moment. So I tried to bring all these perspectives into it. And, and uh, you know, I think even with every criticism of Lincoln in there, what he achieved in the speech still still shines and stands out as this is a remarkable statement by a president trying to heal this country. Booth's the determination to kill Lincoln, is it fair to say it preceded the second inaugural? I know it's catalyzed when, is it April 11th? Is that when Lincoln gives the speech about extending the franchise, the vote, and then Booth has his uh, racist reaction yeah. rhetorically and yeah. then shoots Lincoln three days later? But the, the was the plot in motion by yes. the second inaugural? Yes, uh, Seward had been, I mean, Seward. Booth had been working a long time um, to plot how, how he was going to stop Lincoln and aid the Southern cause. And I write about this in the book, but there was, there was a whole problem with uh, Lincoln had stopped the exchange of prisoners of war uh, because he, the South, he wanted the South not to be able to replenish their forces. And Seward, uh, boy, Booth, Booth thought uh, he could kidnap. He had this crazy idea. He wanted to kidnap Lincoln, bring him to the South, and trade all the Southern Southern prisoners of war in Northern camps for uh, the president. And he actually thought this could work, believe it or not. Um, and then, as the war progressed in the South, and, and you know the whole thing fell apart. Uh, Lee, Lee surrendered at Appomattox. His thoughts changed from kidnapping to murder. And uh, so, yeah, it predated it by quite some time. Do you have a particular favorite phrase or, or sentence in Lincoln's second inaugural? I've read it about four or five times this morning trying to prepare for this. And every time you... Every time I read it, I'm like, you know, that's the best phrase. And then you're like, no, you read it 30 minutes later and go, no, it's probably this one. Is there one that stands well, out to you? The, the thing's so short and it's so poignant. You just read the whole thing. But it's, you know, every drop of blood he's talking about. It, it would be an aspect. It could be interpreted as God's justice that every drop of blood in this terrible war was justly justly spilled uh and every you know bit of wealth of the country might have to be sunk to uh to end this terrible uh crime and this is i mean these phrases but you know but with malice toward none with charity for all is the phrase everyone remembered and even even six weeks later when he was killed and they the funeral train was passing through the country. Those were the signs out there with malice toward none, with charity for all. Uh, that really resonated with people. And I think that phrase lived on and, and actually helped heal the country after Lincoln's death. To quote for the final time, the address. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3000 years ago. So it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
I can't think of anyone else in American history at that level who could have written something so succinct and powerful. And this is this is a man who didn't belong to any organized church. He said um, the the basis of his religious belief was try to do good to others. And here he writes this really searing is almost like Old Testament language. It's just beautiful language uh, talking about the the price of slavery. And it's it's so I mean, it's it resonates to this moment uh, that the political discussions are having today. Last question, and you've already answered the five questions, so you're off the hook, even though I do have <laughs> I do have one question for you that is not related to this book. I asked it of George Will, and he I can tell you his answer. <laughs> uh, but so you're such a baseball fan. I want to ask you this one question. Anyway, uh, obviously, the as you said earlier, the reaction to the speech uh, was somewhat tainted by politics or influenced by someone's political view. Uh, but in general, what was the reaction, not only in the United States, and was there a worldwide reaction? There, yeah, there was, there, was, uh, there was praise for it and an understanding of it in England, for instance, um, which was uh, nice to see. But, but they didn't, people didn't really get it at that moment. I think it had to... And Lincoln said this himself. He wrote to Thurlow Weed, who was a very important political operative in New York. He said, uh, people won't immediately like this speech. Um, and I think it'll take some time before people uh, see what it was all about. And that that was the case. Uh, it's It was viciously attacked. It was praised by some. Some people who were praising it said, well, they were kind of apologetic. Oh, it's got that quirky uh, Lincoln language in it. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, now it's carved in stone on the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, we should, kids should be memorizing it. I guess they don't do that anymore, but they should. Along with the Gettysburg Address. Yeah, yeah. If you could witness, be there. For any baseball game in American history, <laughs> which one would you choose? Ah, uh, I would like to go back to 1884 and see uh, my hero, Old Hoss Radborn of the Providence Grays, pitching uh, pitching in the World Series, I think, against the New York uh, Metropolitans. Uh, the closest I came to it is just writing about it, and I have a <laughs> a scorecard from um, that World Series, which is amazing, um, and uh, I, I love I love baseball history. Uh, my first two books were about baseball, but I think baseball offers a window into the culture of the time, no matter what period you look at it, and it's just fascinating, fascinating, and er early baseball especially because these people are forgotten their stories are forgotten but they're just so wonderfully colorful and funny and you know old Haas Radborn was a very surly guy who was apparently the first human being ever photographed flashing the middle finger and he <laughs> drank a quart of whiskey a day at the height of his career and you know he won 60 games or 59 games depending on how you count in a single season as a pitcher which is uh something wonderful so i love i love uh i love early baseball i'd love to see him pitch for what it's worth uh, george will chose bill mazarowski game seven, uh, <laughs> 1960 <laughs> well, world series you know I, I got to see one of the great moments for me as a red sox fan which i was at the game game six of the world series in 1975 when fisk hit that home run and waved it fair so Against I feel like, Reds. I, yeah, I feel like I got to see the game I'd want to see if I could go back to any one game. So that's the uh, game that changed television sports, not just yeah. baseball, but all of it. Yeah, yeah. I was sitting you, in the last row, so I had to, uh, and I the the roof was blocking my view of the left field wall, so I had to watch Fisk wave to figure out if he had hit the home run and uh, when he. 
when he started jumping the bases, I, I knew he had done it. That was a great moment. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies and Indiana-based public relations enterprise and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station. The McGinley's Golden Ace Inn and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today, and we're very grateful for him to come back on the podcast. Our guest has been Edward Acorn. We are discussing his monumental book. It's well-received. The reviews are terrific. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. The book is called Every Drop of Blood, The Momentous Second Inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Ed, thank you so much for your time today. You're always welcome on the podcast anytime. Thank you, Robert. It was great to be here. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.